Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, three guests with me today, uh, Evan Vandenberg, who is the founder and CEO of Dibs, which is one of our portfolio companies, we'll be talking about it. And he is joined by his general counsel, uh, Tom Mack, and his advisor, is that the right word to use, Rich? Yeah, that's right. Rich that's Whitman. Right. So uh, welcome, guys. Thank you all for, for joining us. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Bradley. So um, explain, Evan, to the audience, I think everyone kind of knows what an, EF, what an NFT is, kind of knows what an EFT is also, I guess, <laughs> uh, or ETF. And then like, but but just take half a step back, assume the, the audience is not as sophisticated as your normal kind of cohort. Explain, one, why this world exists, and, and, and then two, specifically what Dips is doing. Yeah, no, it's a great question and, and good timing with uh, this whole uh, NFT week in New York. But yeah, I mean, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, right? I think... Uh, you know, as, as opposed to like explaining NFTs fully, I think I would like to actually like kind of just separate the differences. Like yeah. what we think about it in, in terms of kind of the way it's portrayed in the media is right now it's a lot of like, you know, JPEGs or this kind of like front end animation kind of stuff, right? Where it's really interesting. It has, you know, tradable and collectability to it. They're all unique though, right? Like essentially this is like a unique record um, on a blockchain. It has, you know, a lot of compute functionality, other things you can do with it. Traditionally and, and historically it's been, a lot of like, you know, game items or, you know, we're just talking about digital sneakers or crypto kitties or top shots, right? Um, but they have a lot more power and capability. And that's, you know, part of what we're utilizing it for at Dibs. Um, and so to tie it back to us specifically here, we use NFTs in a different way. So we take physical collectibles, primarily sports cards right now, we uh, vault and insure them, and then we utilize NFTs really as kind of like title transfer mechanism. Um, we have all the you know UI and, and image uh, uh, details and, and all the things that are required to actually physically return the card. Um, but we don't, yeah, we use it for a totally different purpose. So card goes to the vault, we create an NFT, we fractionalize that NFT, um, and then we're actually, you know, trading fractional interests on our, you know, mobile or web app. Right. Um, more kind of similar to, you know, uh, a more traditional trading experience yeah. that you'd see on Robinhood or something else. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and w w give me sort of the, I mean, f for those of us, so it's funny, one, one argument that Hugo and I have constantly is I always want to talk about sports on the podcast and he always tries to stop me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So in, in deference to Hugo here, give me the, where, where does both dibs, but also just because my, my guess is some people are seen saying, so what? Why do I care about this? Why should I keep listening? But where can this go where all of a sudden it does become relevant to most people's lives? Yeah, it's so I mean, yeah, where it is today, I think is, is you know, a we've started with a very particular market, which is sports cards, right? Um, we leverage blockchain technology to make that, you know, highly accessible, right? A lot of the interesting sports cards and collectibles in the world very small percentage of the population that can really, you know, obtain these things, right? We're talking about 10, you know, $100,000 million cards, right? I mean, Patrick Mahomes rookie cards are going for several million dollars now. Um, but fandom, right? I mean, his fans in general are not the same people, you know, uh, by and large, who can afford that. So there's a cost element to it, right, of uh, lowering the barriers to entry. Uh, there is also a massive kind of utilitarian perspective where you can actually have this thing on your phone, you can collect it, you can actually interact with it in a much different way. Infinitely more liquidity than what you'd see in, you know, an auction house, right, where you're actually waiting for, you know, maybe a monthly auction or quarterly auction, um, or even eBay where you pack, ship, and sell. Uh, we can trade, you know, 24-7 uh, real time. So I don't know if you want to add anything, Thomas, but yeah, yeah. I, th I mean, an, an interesting point about dibs is the genesis of dibs was probably 18 to 24 months ago now. Mm -hmm. So it's before NFT became a household name. And like Evan said earlier, people think of NFTs now. They think of Top Shop moments. They think of JPEGs, whatever. We're sort of the NFT sort of has become what we collect. 
But I think Dibs was built on Dibs. We love that. Love the idea of you know NFTs becoming what they've become. But also the idea that like NFTs, non fungible digital tokens, will revolutionize other things. They might not create sui generis, brand new categories of things to collect. Um, they have done that, but they might do other things as well like to what, make the like, other things that, yeah, we, that so we've been doing for years make them better, make totally, them easier, make right. Them so you could think about things like title on a piece of property, providence or a piece of art. Like, there's so yeah. many different things that you think about where it applies. What are some times that, that, that kind of you think are promising? I mean, I think that there's a future of ownership story, which is really into to your question of why the hell do I care about this? Um, the answer is sort of like, if you can do all the things that you've cared about, that people have cared about for the last couple hundred years, yeah. but you can do them faster, better, then I, most people care about that. So yeah, maybe it's about art. Maybe, maybe it's about sort of all the things that you don't eat, drive, live in, wear every day are candidates for the future of ownership. The things that you own to own can be made more liquid, can be safer if they're vaulted with a third party uh, vault insured. And they can, you can get a non-fungible digital token that represents the title of that thing. And you can do all the things that you want to do in the digital world with it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes total sense. So, okay. And all right, so Rich, ex explain your role in this whole process. I'm an advisor to the company. Evan was actually one of the first people who talked to me about this. He came to me, he said, hey, I have this idea. I'm really interested in kind of thinking about NFTs, but I want to talk about it in the physical world. And, and I had been involved with, with crypto for a while. I'd heard of CryptoKitties. Still really never understood it. But when we talked about this concept of the digital twin, where you say you've got a physical thing, and then you can actually create a, you know, a record on an immutable ledger that talks about ownership and provenance, that was just sort of like a no-brainer to me. We actually talked, Thomas, Evan, and I, about this concept of free porting, which going back to the ownership 2.0, you know, free porting is where if you're very wealthy, you've got art, you put the real art in a free port, and then you might take a copy, put it in your house, and then you may sell that art multiple times over. I, I saw a plot line on Billions where they were doing that to avoid paying taxes. And that's exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's there's a whole bunch of ideas, but the the thing is, is that the physical thing doesn't have to change as many hands as often as the title to it or the ownership might, and that's really so do, powerful. Do you think that uh, physical items, whether it's a piece of art, a card, whatever it is? to a certain extent, end up sort of getting used and damaged simply from the process of going, even if everyone's trying to do a good job with it, from point A to point B to point C? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that friction, and we we see it in the card game all the time. I mean, that's why you have sort of the PSA process, and they wrap it, and they package it. I mean, there's definitely, like, there's what we'll call, like, economic waste, which is over time, however many times it changes hands, people say, like, oh, well, the card's been, or the, this collector lost it. But if you can actually trade the NFT or the, the digital representation of that card, it could change hands 20 times, the physical thing doesn't degrade. Right. And that's an amazing concept. Yeah, and, and Evan, tell me if this seems right, which is, it seems to me, and again, uh, to piss off you, I'll try to talk about sports as much as I can here, um, <laughs> that, you know, when I think about like my, my kids, right, as sports fans, they really follow the athlete much more than they follow that I mean because I like literally live and die with the Mets they have to pretend to really care about that but overall like my son's not we're not Nets fans but we went the other night to, to watch KD right and that's the, he very specifically went there and by the way KD could have been on either team and he wouldn't have cared right he just wanted to see KD and then he you know he's and would engage stuff so do you think at the fact that people have sort of shifted to from kind of institutions and teams to individuals, kind of to me, it, it heightens the case for why the the sports card market, you know, is even more exciting. And certainly, 
one of the reasons that I approved the investment when, when we made it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head, right? I mean, you're just seeing that across the board in sports. It is becoming so player-centric and not so team-centric, right? My dad's the same way, right? And I think it even really started with, you know, potentially my generation, certainly in the newer ones, where it's become so dominated by the actual athlete themselves and not as much by the teams or leagues anymore. Yeah, yeah. The players, especially in the NBA yeah. and some of these, you know, particular leagues, I think, you know, the NBA and the NFL to some extent have just done incredible jobs of building these brands. And they've done a really good job, you know, individually, right? We have some athlete investors on the cap table. And it's just like, it's incredible the level of sophistication and like, in intentionality around what they're doing with their brands and and how they're engaging with their fans right so i think collecting is just like this really obvious next step where it's going to grow and it's already you know kind of being proven out in the market yeah i mean it's it's funny because you, you try as a vc not to let your personal experiences overly dictate your investment decisions but again having a 12 year old son i feel like so many of these trends are just things that i'm I've, i'm living in real life in one way or the other right i'm like Yes, you know, fractionalized sports card trading, yes, it makes sense. Yes, we should develop a platform at eSports Gambling or whatever it is. And then other things you're like, not that he should be gambling on at least till he's 18 for the regulators here. Uh, but um, <laughs> And that eSports stuff's interesting too, right? I mean, like, I don't know if your kids are on Twitch yeah, all the time yeah, watching. Is, that's, that is a whole other thing that, you know, we're obviously keeping our eye on sure. and staying very close to is just – the rapid growth of that, and actually, you know, I used to work in the marketplaces for skins trading, right, which was in-game items. Um, right. So that's, you know, a whole another kind of sports, you know, we'll, we'll refer to it here. Explain Tops to me. I know that you've worked with them before. H how should the listener here think about dibs is to Tops as whatever? Yeah, I mean, it, it, we uh, we don't, we're not directly tied to any of these manufacturers, right? I mean, Tops is, you know, kind of the has historically been like the the biggest you yeah. know american manufacturer of uh, collectible cards uh, panini stepped in you know more recently in the last 10 years really kind of eating up market share fanatics now making that huge huge buy um, but for us right they're creating this product that we then kind of leverage in a different way but we actually don't have a relationship directly with these manufacturers so we're taking their cards but those are in you know they could anybody can trade those cards freely right once they're sold and they're in the in the ecosystem those are those are there, and so we're just trying to take that process that you know people are traditionally doing on eBay and making it infinitely, um, infinitely easier, hopefully more fun and, and more you know accessible. So Thomas, from a regulatory standpoint, and I was I was telling Evan was here at the office yesterday. I was I was telling him this, which is, it, it, we had a call once that I thought was remarkable, only because it was a call to try to pick our regulator, right? And that is like never really happens in the real world. And the place where it could happen is in these sort of incredible white spaces like crypto or AI or drones or esports or NFTs, whatever it is, where there's, it's not like with, I don't know, Uber or whatever it is or FanDuel, where we just took an existing regulatory structure and kind of upended it. There is no regulatory structure. So as a general counsel, how do you think about being in charge of the regulatory matters for a company that's in a space that government doesn't understand at all. Yeah. Now, uh, this is something we think a whole lot about. We think very carefully about. I think first principles matter when you're sort of doing new things and you say, you know, if, if we're doing, you know, a Reg A plus offering, we can kind of get out reams and reams of books and case law and statutes. And we say, well, this is how it works. And we follow that. We follow that roadmap. Um, where you innovate, you do new things. I mean, and, and you know, you follow a path that that sort of the, the the earliest innovators have followed so far. And you look at the Coinbase's, you look at the Gemini's of the world, and you and you say you look for as a first principles matter. You say there may not be an extremely clear roadmap here, but 
anybody who looks at this wants to know whether it's as a consumer with their consumer hat on, as a lawmaker with their lawmaker hat on, or a regulator, they want to know that consumers are protected. If if your business is there's a there's a there's a sports card that's vaulted somewhere in a non-fungible token that represents it at the base level, they want to be comfortable with that tar- that card's there. So you think about things like transparency, you can obviously leverage things that just weren't around even a decade ago. Um, where you can sort of take transparency and as on a distributed ledger, fully public, you can put and, and dibs the NFTs that represent sports cards. It actually has the, the info for that card, has a PSA serial number, has the identity of the vault. So we think about things like that. And as you know, Bradley, we're thinking at, at, a, at a higher level as well about you know, our roadmap. But as a first principles matter, we look at it and we say we, we want our consumers and, and anybody else that looks at it to be as comfortable as possible that while this is new and it's innovative, um, you know, among other things, the card's really there uh, in the vault. And if you go to the third party vault and you say, here's my NFT, I'd like my card, you get your card. All right, so I have a hard question for you. I think what I'm going to have to do is ask you the question and then pivot to these guys with an easy question so they could kill some time to let you figure out the answer, <laughs> okay. which is, in retrospect, I could have just asked you this before the podcast and it would have been easier. But um, what should regulators think about? How, if, if you're a regular listening to this podcast and you're saying, okay, I want to intelligently re- regulate NFTs, what's your advice to them? Okay. If you want them to think about it, I've got a, a, a really easy question, which is tell me sort of the craziest NFT that you've seen so far and, and your favorite for for each of you. Uh, there's there's an NFT, I think it's like N numbers. Have you seen this? And no. it's it's kind of, well, it's kind of like loot. So, so loot is kind of a crazy NFT where um, if anybody remembers the old school role playing games that were literally just text, like, and you used your imagination to figure out, like, oh, okay, here's the story, and I'm going to talk to this person, and it says, like, you got one divine sword, and you'd be like, that's cool, but you could never see it. People are actually selling NFTs that are that, are that in a bundle, and then the idea is you can use that NFT to, to create attributes in a game that's going to be, you know, played, right? And so in a role playing game, it's actually going to be built around the NFT in and of itself. But the, the thing that's kind of crazy is the NFT is literally right now a black and white card with the characteristics of your character's stuff. So like you have a sword and boots and gear. Yeah. And it, it's it's kind of wild because it taps into this idea of like, what does it mean to own something? Right. And I think Super people yeah. people think about this as like, well, you know, I own the clothes I wear, I own what's in my wallet. I but 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 now with with the advent of gaming and you think about World of Warcraft and RPGs, I mean people spend a lot of their life there. I think that that's really where, you know, reimagining that kind of ownership for digital stuff and creating that like that spark in people I, I feel like uh, loot has done a very good job at that there's a couple others that kind of do the same thing yeah I mean that that is definitely interesting I mean I'm, I'm loosely familiar with the project I think you know I'll take it a different direction like I'm seeing some really interesting stuff with nfts in the play to earn perspective right there's like these interesting inflationary models of people like mining gold in a game right like literally uh, well, actually, I brought one of these partners into the, the, old, the old company I was working at, but it was a game called Prospect. You literally were mining for gold, right? And like all of a sudden, this gold was you know a fungible token, could be traded, and the equipment could be bought and sold. Yeah. Um, it was just a really interesting use case for the technology. And then these inflationary models that we're starting to see kind of pop up where like if you hold something, stake it, and people are actually tying in finance to these games in a really kind of bizarre but interesting you know way and i think uh you know a few examples like alien world is out there farmer's world uh i mean you you know we're in the we're in the nascent stages of this right it's going to get bigger and better and 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 really more sophisticated but you're just seeing just crazy weird innovation that I'm, i'm i'm loving i don't 
entirely get all of it, but it's, yeah, it's but that's, the, that's the creative process, right? A, a yeah. lot of it will end up being stuff that doesn't kind of make it through because it's not that good, but some of it will, and some of it will inspire other, th inspire other things that's exciting. So, yeah, that makes total sense. Do you want to answer your question now, or do you want me to solve with more questions I, for that? No, I can answer you it. I can, go? I may right. phone a friend and pull Rich on it, too, because I think Rich would have some good <laughs> yeah, thoughts. Yeah, we, we can tag team it. All right, so it's all, just to repeat, the question yeah. is, if you're a regulator listening to this, and you genuinely want to intelligently regulate NFTs, what should you understand and what should you do? Yeah, so, yeah, I, would so say, I would say, as a starting as a point, I would say that there is, there's a, a rich body of case law on the federal side, and we'll spare the audience the, the vagaries of the how we test and things like that, but you know, people kind of know what this looks like by now, particularly in the digital asset space. And that body of case law, is it actually is incredibly broad, covers investment schemes like in you know, breeding chinchillas and orange groves and you know, all sorts of ty different types of investment schemes. So as a starting point, I would say, like if we're talking about NFTs, and a regulator is sort of going to look at these things and say, well, what, what do I call it? Yeah. The starting point, I think, would be you know this body of case law. Like when I look at a Beeple, and there, there's a lot of people saying a lot of things on this topic. When I look at a Beeple and a $69 million JPEG, basically, that's on, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't see a security. I don't see a, a reliance on you know Winkleman's efforts to you know make it worth more tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I don't see any of those things. And I think that sort of so that's sort of maybe a, a first a first pass at it. And the second thing I'll say before I throw it to Rich, I would say like if if I you know could sort of have the regulators here, I would say to also be willing to consider the fact that the world is changing you know like a lot of these the, the tests that are in the case law are things like consumption is there an investment purpose is there a consumptive purpose more and more people live their lives in a digital world so actually you might actually own um, you know a, a physical thing but consumption may not be having it in your attic so you can hold it and look at it in fact, more and more people who own, for instance, a whole a whole Babe Ruth card, yeah. they actually never hold it in their hand. Right, because that would be crazy. Because that would be crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so they actually keep it in a vault. And you can so you can kind of think of a scenario where you would say, okay, so we've got you know you know well you know Bobby only owns ten percent of the Babe Ruth card, so clearly it's an investment. But in a world where you digitize it, you can actually transparently on chain show that you own ten percent of it, and it's natively digital. It's actually more consumable than ten, than a physical card. Yeah. And you can, you know, if you can share on social, you can say again, verifiably, transparently, yeah, I own 10% of a $100,000 card. That's actually really cool. And that actually, there may be more collective value, there may be more consumptive value to digitally owning 10% of that card than having the card in your attic. And so the two things I would say is, yeah, the standards are there, and also like the world is changing too around us. Yeah. We have new forms of, you know, uh, uh, transparency from these distributed ledgers and new consumer behaviors. So those are like kind of two like little north stars I'll point at. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. I mean, just to hit on that that last point a little bit more is that there's actually the consumptive value is is now becoming social. And that, I think, is something that a lot of regulators haven't thought about. You know, there's a lot of discussion and, and ink being spilled around, you know, fractionalizing certain things. And, and if you actually think about that question long enough, you start to realize that there are a lot of things in the world that are, that are fractionalized. Let's think about this today. Concert tickets are essentially fractionalizing time in a concert hall. You each get a little seat. You don't get the whole thing. Yep. You could theoretically buy it out. Um, it doesn't automatically change the relationship between the consumer and what's happening in the stadium. It would be a stadium. weird concert if it was just a stadium with you in the Well, yeah, you yeah. fill with people and your friends, right? Um, but, but I think that that's, that's one of the other things, which is things are changing, and, and be willing to test underlying assumptions around the way that things may have worked or appeared to be, where you, maybe you had a structure where you wanted to regulate. And then if, if things change where you can fractionalize something, you don't need an intermediary, you don't need a third party involved, well, then it, it kind of undermines the need to have disclosure obligations between 
just two end users right. um, who, are, who are equally situated in a transaction across, a, again, a, a baseball card, a concert ticket, whatever it might be. Yeah, and interacting with a smart contract that's on a distributed ledger, you say. Publicly available, what, what's there to disclose, right? Yeah, or effectively is. You know, it's it's a, already disclosed. disclosed right. Yeah. So, so let me, so if I'm the regulator and listen to this, I'm saying, okay, fine. My job is basic consumer protection. Um, and by the way, you guys want that too. So yeah. what do they do? How do they figure out where they should be looking for problems? What do they do about them when they find them? How should that work? I mean, I, I definitely have some thoughts on this. Like, we've looked at products where you've got, you know, sort of the, like a traditional securities disclosure. Yep. It's 120 pages. No one's reading that. <laughs> like, regular everyday consumers are not looking yep. at that and going, okay, let me read this whole perspective. <laughs> They're making this. And, and actually, the thing, I think the, the consumer protection thing is actually more of a snake in the grass in that context. Because if I go to that website as a consumer, I assume the disclosures are all I need to see. And I just can, you know, click on it and do yep. it. Um, but I actually think that where we're going, where you have publicly available ledgers, you know, any information that you want on the blockchain, you can see what the asset was purchased for, who holds it, who are the other holders. And the smart contract essentially is the thing that, you know, administrates it all in its code. You know, that, that from a consumer protection standpoint is fantastic. There's no reliance on an intermediary. There, all the information is as available to you as it is to anyone else in the transaction. Um, and then you also don't have the false sense of security that might come from a 90-page disclosure where oftentimes, I mean, we do have securities class action fraud because those disclosures oftentimes are not are not adequate. Yeah, I would, one thing I would add is just, you know, there's a, people think about, you know, sort of the usual suspects, SEC, CFTC, when they look at a new, a novel product that's sort of somewhat financial, but I think we've also got a range of financial regulators in this country, including yeah. banking regulators, state banking regulators, um, and all these different protocols do different things, yeah. and I yeah. think starting to think about, and, and, and this is not just me saying this, this is, this is out there, but um, starting to think about the full range of regulatory protection, and in some cases, you may look at a model and say, oh, "Yeah, this this sort of this sort of looks like a safe deposit box. How do we regulate that?" Um, Rich and I also, you know, like to think a lot about technical technological neutrality, and the idea being, you know, if you put put new tech, a new tech layer on something, if it looks like something we had before, the tech shouldn't change the way we regulate it. And so I think that's also a good starting point. Um, you know, when you say, you know, what is this? How do we protect consumers? How do we regulate it? Perhaps the first question for all of us should be, well, how have we regulated this in the past? There's going to be some things like the pure digital NFT that's really, it's just brand new. It's very hard to answer that question. But a lot of these new protocols and new digital assets, they're actually pretty good answers to that question. And that's something that we okay. kind and of- And so uh, the last, and then I've, I have three quick final questions for, for Evan. But so if, if, and maybe the answer is just to email one of you guys, but like, if you're regularly like, okay, how do I actually find all the stuff and do it? Like, what resources are there for them? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly committed to answering any any calls that we get, and so we, you know, we would be um, happy to have that discussion. So, like a general info email for for Dibs that they could reach you guys. At? Yeah, I think there's contact at dibs.io. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or you could re if you reach out to me, I'll I'll connect everyone too. Perfect. But, uh, cool. All right, and three three questions. I know we're getting tight on time here. Number one, customer acquisition. How does it work? How do you find them? And what's what's the competition like to, to get these customers? Yeah, great question, right? And, and it's changed, right? It's fundamentally changed since the you know the the way we launched the product. There was a beta period. We had about forty thousand just kind of organic signups on our wait list. But uh, you know, by far the most efficient user acquisition method for us has been the influencer YouTube podcast routes. Yep, it's not even close. Um, you know, we haven't really spent uh, significant ad dollars on uh, you know traditional media platforms, Google, Facebook, you know, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we've 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 dabbled. 
but for us, it's been infinitely better to go work with, you know, athletes, um, other, you know, collectors in the space, people yeah. like yourself. Um, and that's driven, you know, a ton of organics. And then now we're really trying to push towards a referral model as well. Um, and, you know, really trying to keep a healthy uh, referral business uh, in terms of our user acquisition. Uh, going forward, a lot of content creation plans. Mm -hmm. So leveraging, you know, giveaways and some of this, again, the tech we've built where live on stream, we can do a lot of different interesting things, you know, within our network, we've got a lot of, you know, really interesting collectors, you know, athletes that are, you know, renowned, um, and trying to kind of bring in a broader audience to this collector space that has historically, I think, been kind of this very pigeon held, you know, kind of audience. It's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not as um, approachable for a gener you know, generic uh, sports fan, you know, the daily fantasy sports crowd, whatever it may be, fandom of all kind of, you know, types outside of sports. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. N next of the of the last three. So I have this thesis. That I think it's probably wrong, but I want to test it on you, which is NFTs are the incredibly lucky beneficiary of cryptocurrency being wildly popular and yet not actually being a currency. And therefore, there aren't that many ways to spend it. And this becomes a really good outlet, especially as people see this huge appreciation in their crypto portfolios. So therefore, they feel comfortable spending, I mean, 69 million other people still seems a little nuts to me, but putting that aside, they feel comfortable certainly investing, you know, in fractionalized cards on, on dibs. Um, is that true? Is it not true? And then what happens to you if crypto ever does become a true actual currency and, and not just sort of a security? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's there's, there's a few questions in there, like and a few points I want to hit on, yeah. because A, it's a really good point you just brought up, right? Because what, like, truthfully, outside of, you know, selling your Bitcoin for US dollars, there's not a ton of applications, right? I mean, buying NFTs is really kind of one of the fundamental core tenets yeah. of that, you know, the ways you can actually utilize the cryptocurrency. So that's an interesting point. I do think it's a huge point, right? I think it's a huge driver for this market, right? Um, I also think it's really approachable for people. They don't have to feel like they're getting into the weeds of like, you know, DeFi and other things necessarily. Like, yeah. you know, it's a it's a picture. It's some sort of IP that you can get behind that you can understand. The yeah, communities totally. are ravenous too, right? Like doing a really, really good job in that space of, of people educating other people. Um, and people can get, you know, with a very simple thought process can kind of get involved. Um, and then getting back to your point, what happens if crypto just dies, right? Or, or I don't think it's ever going to die, but I like either, but crash, but, whatever yeah, it might or, be. Or, or just, by the way, you could buy your groceries with it or whatever else, and therefore the competition sure. for you expands considerably. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about what we do is physical, right? Yeah. Is these physical collectibles, right? We're talking 120 years of, you know, tradeability, collectability, and value in these things. So I think, you know, we're leveraging that technology and, and you know, definitely want to look at the purely digital NFTs as, as, you know, part of our offering in the future. But for us, we always want to have this core physical backing, right? Because no matter what happens in this, you know, crypto cycle, cards aren't going anywhere. Yeah. That's my personal belief, right? Yeah, and, sure. and certainly rare art and other things, right? That's not changing. And they're really, really interesting markets there. Um, so, I guess that, you know, to answer your question yeah. on what happens in a down cycle. Yeah, crypto. totally. All right, so last question, because I, I know we're way over on time. But um, just in your experience as sort of someone in and around the, the card industry, if you're kind of a emerging collector here and you want to be able to sort of, you know, be smart about buying, you know, parts of fractionalized cards as NFTs, um, what, what should you look for? Is it, I mean, it's not just that the best player is always the mix for the most valuable card, right? So, like, what, what if, if you were going to invest, like, what are the characteristics that you're looking for that you say, okay, this, tr you know, Trey Young thing will appreciate, even though he's not the best player in the league, but for these six reasons or whatever it is? How do you think about it? 
Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. I'm going to stay away from like my personal investment okay. advice on this. It's you know, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of people out there. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of people out there that are happy to give you, you know, a lot of detail. But yeah. in terms of just trends, right, and ways to think about this stuff, right, it's it's actually an incredibly complex data matrix of of how kind of all these cards. There's so many brands now, and within those brands, there's so many inserts and parallels. So to answer your question, no, the best player, right? If we just looked statistically at who are the best players of all time, that is not how cards stack rank. Right. Um, you know, different eras. Uh, especially if you look, you know, late 80s, early 90s, junk card era, a lot less value on players who are, you know, first bout Hall of Famers versus today, you know, a Luka Doncic card or a Trey Young card, you know, they've got, you know, multi-million dollar cards already, right? Yeah. And like, yeah. how could you even make an argument to date that that person is, you know, it's a lot of it's kind of like futures, right? Yeah. It's you're betting well, it's, on the future of this player. Part of what makes sports exciting. Right? Yeah. The and, then, and then there's like the whole brand element and, and grading adds a whole nother caveat to this industry. So it is really, it is actually hard to get involved into the industry, I think it's actually tough to get into cards, but I think that's what we're trying to solve for too, right? Is we're trying to make it a lot easier. You can kind of see it all in one place. We, yeah, yeah. so. Cool. All right, how do people uh, find dibs? Yeah, dibs.io, uh, that's the website. And then App Store, it's on Google and uh, Google Play Store, iOS, type in dibs, it'll be the first thing that pops up. All right, Evan. It's D-I-B-B-S. Cool, there we go. Evan, Rich Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Cool. Thank you.